0: The title of the sermon this morning, To Believe or Not to Believe, and we all kind of hear the echo, that is the question, isn't it, right? To believe or not to believe, that is the question today that I want to pose to you. Our text is Luke chapter 11, we're going to be verses 14 through 28 today, and for those who are just kind of coming to to drop in on this series, I want to give you a bit of context of where we're at. We started at the very beginning, and, and so far, we're just over halfway through the earthly ministry of Christ. It was a three-year ministry, roughly, and we have about ten months or so left of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus, in chapter 9, said, uh, it, it tells us in Luke, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, for his work in Jerusalem to be accomplished, says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus was resolved to do the work that he was assigned him by his Father to do. Part of that work was to obey him perfectly. And so he has. At every step along the way, he has been without sin, sinless, in heart and word and deed. His devotion is complete. And that qualifies him then to do the work that was assigned, which in its fullness was to willingly choose to lay his life down, to be an atoning sacrifice for sinners like you and me. None of us can say that we've obeyed perfectly. But Jesus came and did, he he succeeded where we have failed. And he then is set on going to Jerusalem to fulfill his purpose, to do exactly what he came to do. To take upon himself the sin of everyone who looks to him in faith. And to pay it in full. To die the death that I deserve because of my sin and rebellion, and then to be buried in the grave, and after three days to proclaim victory over sin and death and hell and Satan in a resurrection which confirmed that it is finished, it is accepted, and He is exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father, and He is coming again. And all who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be caught up to meet him in the air and forever be together with him to believe or not to believe that is the question for those who choose to reject Jesus Christ who choose not to believe their future is altogether different it will be a future of wrath and just judgment for rebellion and sin that will not end in the fires of eternal hell. This is the mission of this Jesus, this Savior. This is why He has come and He has driven. He set His face like flint. He is going to Jerusalem to accomplish the work that is set before Him, to endure the cross and to proclaim victory over the enemy. And so that's where we pick up this text. He is on the move. He is teaching Just as uh, as uh, Dan described and and R.C. Sproul in the videos this morning, he is teaching, and he has a whole huge group of followers, disciples, Talmudim. They are following him, hanging on his every word, memorizing, learning, growing. Everywhere he goes, he teaches, and many times he confirms his authoritative teaching with a sign or a miracle, something that is evidence that he is, in fact, who he claims to be. And we have that again today, a spectacular display. Let's start in verse 14. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, "'He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons.'" While others to test him kept seeking a sign, uh, seeking from him a sign from heaven. We have a fascinating exchange taking place. We don't know exactly where the location is that this happens. He comes upon a, a man who is mute, but this man is not just uh, you know born this way. This man has a demon that has possessed him, and the demon has kept him from speaking. It's not a boy, this is a man. So we understand that there's some length of time here, at least, where this man has been unable to speak. Now, picture yourself. You were able to speak. Now the demon has taken up residence inside of you, and you are enchained to silence. You are unable to say a word, you can't utter anything. This man was in prison, he was enslaved. He was powerless to solve this on his own. Think of all the things they would have tried. Maybe even others who tried to exercise this demon unsuccessfully. He was hopeless, and he was pinned in. And then Jesus comes to town. And Jesus, as he often does, throws the demon out. And what you've got to do when you read a text like this is you've got to not just see the words, you've got to hear the sounds, okay? Do you hear what this man would have sounded like when being set free from Christ, from this this mute demon that kept him in silence? You've got to hear his voice. If you had been in chains in silence and you've been longing to speak and Jesus comes and sets you free, this is exclamation point across the whole page. I can talk. Oh my goodness, look at what Jesus did, and there's no shutting him up, right? There is no way this guy is going to be quiet. He's jumping around, and he's proclaiming, and he's celebrating, and everybody can hear it. The echo of the sound of deliverance has has to ring as we move through this teaching. I just picture Uh, Jesus trying to teach with the, the, the chaos of this guy running around, I can still talk. Look at this. It's working. Right? His wife, his family, celebrating, jumping around. That's the situation as it takes place. Now, it's an undeniable miracle. There is no denying the power that has just overcome this man's prison. But in the crowd, there's varied responses. But Certainly there would be those in the crowd who are believers. These are followers of Christ. They, they follow him everywhere. They believe he is the Messiah. They've trusted in him. Many of them have left everything to follow him. The disciples would be here celebrating with this man, his freedom, the deliverance that Jesus accomplished. But Luke tells us that there were others in the crowd that day. Some were skeptics. This is the guy in the corner, maybe the back of the crowd just with his arms crossed. Ah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I can hear the guy, but I need, I need something else. Maybe if, if he could just, if he could do something else, well, then I would believe. If I could blink my eyes and then uh, and, and fly, then I would believe. You know, if, if, if I could just get a prayer answered... And this problem that I've got would go away. Then I would believe, Jesus. Then I would definitely follow you. If I could get my dream job, if I could get a million dollars, if I could get a vacation home, if I could get rid of, if I could add, if I could, if I could. What have we done here? The skeptic tends to turn Jesus into a genie come fit in this lamp do what i prefer i want you to prove yourself to me and then maybe i'll believe i just say right here jesus will never be your genie he is way too big for that lamp he is sovereign and so all the skeptics who stand back waiting we need more signs we just need more signs just think of how much they've seen. They've seen people raised from the dead. They've seen people who were lame from birth jumping and dancing. They've seen people healed of all kinds of infirmities. They've seen crowds healed in mass number. What they need is not more miracles, what they need is to believe. To believe. There are others in the crowd, antagonists. These are the people who are opposing Jesus. They are seeking to squash his popularity, his ministry. They want to see Jesus silenced. They hate what he stands for. They hate his threatening teaching that is destabilizing their power, their grip, their control. And so at every opportunity, they seek to try to trip him up and trap him and question him. These are the same who will grow in their hostility to the point where they want to kill him. They want to, they want to take his life. They want to kill the most innocent man the world has ever known. What do they say? Well, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. You know, antagonism rarely employs logic. <laughs> so too back in this day. It's about the dumbest thing they could have said, as far as an accusation goes. Well, we can't deny that he did it. We, we, I mean, it happened, okay? So, uh, what are we going to say? Because we don't believe that he is the Messiah. We don't believe that he's the messenger of God, the son of God himself. So, you know what? He must be from Satan. That's what we'll say. But we won't just say Satan. We're going to say Beelzebul. Beelzebul which is the most critical, demeaning, offensive, blasphemous thing they could say to Jesus. Beelzebul most literally translates to the Lord of the Flies. Jesus, we think that you healed this man who had a demon in the power of the God of dung and decaying flesh. Beelzebul. That's not that glorious, is it? They're hoping that the crowd will be repulsed by this idea and latch on to it and not listen to Him. It's unbelievably blasphemous. Jesus has every right in this interaction to drop these men dead where they stand, to call fire down from them, to cause their hearts to seize up in a moment. He could do that. It's well within his power, and it's certainly within his right. Blasphemy has been spoken. Uh, Maybe spoken. What struck me is that in verse 17, we read that Jesus, knowing their thoughts. Now, this is fascinating. Whenever we see this show up, he knows their thoughts. So maybe they murmured it, Maybe they thought it. Maybe they just stood off like this. And Jesus knows exactly where they're at. You can't hide from Jesus. You know, one of the worst things for a society is when they begin to call what is good evil. Or what is evil, good. Pregnancy is problematic. A baby is just a fetus. A life is not that big a deal. It's about convenience. Murder is endorsed and celebrated. Friends, when good is called evil and evil is called good, Satan rejoices. It is our inclination to ride against what is good and true and holy. Left to ourselves, this is exactly where our hearts go. We are rebels by inclination. We are, we are sinners by conception. We, we sin out of our, our, our instinct. But for grace, we are here. And our culture around us is no surprise to celebrate homosexuality as good to call it tolerance and love and and promote it and then those who stand and say no wait that's not what the word of God teaches God calls this abominable and sinful just like adultery or other sexual sins it is sinful and wrong and We dare not cave to a culture and somehow say, well, okay, fine, we'll just surrender on that one. We'll just call what is good evil and what is evil good. We have to be reminded that we stand as light in dark places, and this darkness is not excited about the light that shines. It hurts eyes, it exposes sin, it's uncomfortable. The church fails to shine when the church fails to have the courage to call what is good, good. And what is evil, evil. Jesus loves in this way. He loves us in this way. We love those who are lost in this way. We may be called bigots, haters, outdated. But before the Lord, we stand faithful. Let the world say what they will. We will love. Now, Jesus goes on to engage these folks. He doesn't strike them down with fire, which is an act of grace in itself. He actually engages. He could have walked away, but instead he begins to reason with them, to just reveal how silly this suggestion is. Is this fraud or is it the finger of God? Verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, "Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, therefore they will be your judges. You see what he's doing." He's exposing their, their, their inconsistent logic here. It makes no sense for Satan to employ his own power to tear apart his own kingdom. Why does this, why do you even think this way? I'm here throwing out a man who's imprisoned by satanic forces in the power of Satan? That's silliness. And then he says, well, by the way, just the double standard that you're running with here. Um, do you really want to stick with this one? Because you have sons who have exercised demons. Are they servants of Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies? Is that what you really want to stick with? You want, you want them to rise up and judge you? Jesus calls them out. Their accusation is this is black magic. The power is undeniable. It must be dark. It must be evil can't be good. Jesus just isn't on our team. He's not one of us. Therefore, it must be dark. It must be some kind of trickery. Jesus goes on to say this, but if it being the power, the healing, the deliverance of this man, if that is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, faithful Jews would have recognized this phrase that Jesus employed when they saw that, the finger of God. They would have instantly, those who knew their history, they would have known, Jesus is telling us something here. That phrase was used in Exodus chapter eight. The third plague, let me show you. When God instructed Moses to do this, uh, Moses told Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff and, and strike the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. This was the, 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 the rising up of just all of these gnats, and we've got a fruit fly infestation in our home. <laughs> I, I am ready to get my shotgun out, you know what I mean? Seriously, they fly right in front of your eye like this. I don't mind if they fly over there, but right here, it's, oh, So we have these little traps all over our home. They're they're killing fruit flies as we speak. I love it. (laughs) Imagine if this room was filled with clouds of fruit flies everywhere. Pharaoh had his own little black magic magicians. They did, in fact, employ the power of Satan, Beelzebul, the lord of the flies. Ironic connection. Jesus is a master. He's So brilliant. But their magicians tried to repeat this. They couldn't. Couldn't do it. So they go to Pharaoh, and this is the phrase they say. This is the finger of God. Now, how did Pharaoh respond? You see, Jesus is pointing to this. Don't be like Pharaoh. Don't harden your heart. Soften your heart and believe. Look at the power you've just witnessed. What did Pharaoh do? His heart was hardened. He would not listen as the Lord had said. Jesus has preached a sermon in one phrase, and they hear it, they know it, but they do not respond as they ought but Jesus is not done teaching he goes on I call this the stronger man verse 21 through 23 when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace his goods are safe but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil hmm now Jesus is speaking about the reality of His entrance into what you could call the, the domain of darkness, right? The, the, the earth is, is under the control of the enemy. God has allowed in His judgment that this would be currently, temporarily, we can add, under the control of the enemy. Sinners are under uh, the, the, the slavery of sin, and the taskmaster is Satan, and his cohort, his demonic horde. Into this comes Jesus. He invades the dark domain with light and life and the power of God. Our greatest enemies, my friend, my friends, are our sin and Satan. We are much like this man who was possessed. When it comes to sin, We choose it. When it comes to Satan, he tempts, we fall, we go. Now, we are not as bad as we could be, but we are completely, left to ourselves, totally depraved. We are without hope. There is no amount of of, of desiring to change this reality that will accomplish that change. We cannot deliver ourselves. We are trapped. We are stuck. And here's the most scary reality. We're fine with it. We do not desire the God who is. We happy-heartedly own our sin and run breakneck toward the fires of hell. It's only the grace of God that would change that reality. Satan owns us. What is our only hope? What is the only thing that will change this equation? If God does nothing, All of humanity goes to hell, rightfully and justly under His holy and righteous wrath. He doesn't have to do anything to save us. Do you feel that? He doesn't owe us salvation. We choose rebellion. We choose sin. We follow Satan. We are justly judged. But God, in His great love, not because of us, but because of Him, He has made a way. Our only hope is in the stronger man coming and overpowering the strong man and looting his house, setting the captives free, coming to the man possessed and saying, Be gone, demon demon be free, come follow me. With a word. Now, I see this taking place uh, as no contest. There's There's no, Jesus isn't out there wrangling and wrestling in the street with this demon and rolling around in the dust. He walks up, just picture an ant, okay? Maybe a very violent and large, scary ant. The most Intimidating ant you could ever imagine. And, and, and compared to that ant, we're gone. We don't stand a chance. Jesus comes up and he's like, "Is that?" "Oh, there's something on my shoe." There is no contest here. Compared to the God who is, Satan is nothing. But compared to us, we're hopeless in his domain. Jesus walks in with words, be gone, be gone, be gone, be gone. And then he takes the cross and he disarms the ruler in authority. He sets the captives free. He storms the gates of hell. I love it. And then he goes on to say this, and this one, this one has to just give us pause. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. What do we make of this? What is Jesus saying? Well, he's speaking to the crowd here. In the crowd, you have your believers, your followers, those who are with Jesus. They're trusting in him. They They have believed that he is the Messiah, their only hope. But there's also the skeptics. They're off in the back looking and kind of watching, hanging out, waiting for more miracles. And then there's the antagonist. And Jesus says, listen, no one in this crowd is neutral. There's no one neutral here. There is either believer or unbeliever. The one who is with me, trusting in me, or the one who is opposing me and my word. You know, we like to think that somehow there's this just category of, of, of humanity that's just kind of neutral. Eh, you know, I try not to get too involved in that stuff. I just kind of just take things as they come. Yeah, I'm not really sure what I think about Jesus. Um, I'm trying to be a good person, right? It's just I'm neutral. I'm like Sweden, right? We just stay neutral. I'm not getting involved in any wars i just neutral. No, you're not. You're not neutral. No one is neutral. To, to not embrace Christ is to make him your enemy. To fail to trust him as Savior and, and friend and Lord and to bow your knee before him is to rail against him and to store wrath up from him. This needs to be preached more in our day. No one is neutral. Not in this room. No one here in this room is neutral. So where do you stand today? If you evaluate honestly, from the heart, is Jesus on the throne in your life? Is He your Savior Your only hope in this life and the next. Is he your king, your master? Are you fully submitted and surrendered to him? If not, he is your enemy. Like an ant on the sidewalk, I warn don't try to take him on, you'll lose. No one who has ever taken Jesus on has won ever (laughs) satan thought he had at the cross he thought he had accomplished victory and that was the very undoing of his entire plan no one is neutral now departure or deliverance we have a window here into the spirit world that is just unique taught by the words of christ here departure or deliverance verse 24 when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places or deserts seeking rest and finds none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. Whoa, head scratcher here. What, where, what is that? How did we get there? What is Jesus saying? How does this relate to what we've been learning and, and moving through? We're talking about demon possession, and we're certainly in the context of that. Jesus has just shown his absolute dominance over demonic forces. With the word gone. This man has been delivered by Jesus himself. How is this man and his deliverance different from those who have been delivered by the sons of the antagonists? They've cast out demons. What is the difference in this deliverance? I think the difference is as clear as the difference between works and gospel. You could have a a, a demon cast out over here by those who don't know of the Messiah, who don't speak the name of Jesus, and great, he's gone, but for how long? And what is going to guarantee that he won't come back? Nothing. This man over here, however, he has Jesus. He has been set free by God himself. He has been delivered from that prison of his, uh, of his uh, indwelling demon. Now, what is the change, the reality for this man? Oh, it's altogether different, isn't it? The idea is over here, you know, let's just clean things up. You know, maybe I had that demon and my life was all falling apart, my hair grew out, and now he's gone. So you know what? I'm going to clean myself up. I'm going to get respectable again. I'm going to get my clothes washed. I'm going to trim my my hair, I'm going to get back to work. Everything is great, right? I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to do good things. I'm just going to try to be good enough. What's the problem? My heart is still enslaved. I might not be indwelt by a demon, but I am still in prison. None of us on our own can change our heart. You can work your hardest to clean up your life. You can say, listen, I'm I'm sick of this this kind of living. I'm going to clean myself up. No more alcohol. No more cursing, right? I'm going to be a good Christian boy. I'm going to do Christian things. I'm going to go to church. I'm never going to miss, you know, Sunday school. I'm going to help old ladies across the street. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. Guess what? You're cleaning up a headstone. That's all that is. You got a scrub brush on a headstone. That there's there you're still in the grave. You don't have life. You're, you're still scrubbing up a hollow man. No amount of moral reform will save anyone. It never has. Never has. And yet the Catholic Church promotes this to the nth degree. Work WORK, WORK, PERFORM, PERFORM, DUTY, DUTY, DUTY. Well, HOW DO I KNOW WHEN IT'S ENOUGH? YOU DON'T. SO YOU BETTER PAY THE CHURCH AND UNLOCK SOME, some EXTRA CREDITS. IT'S DEMONIC, it's SATANIC. You MIGHT AS WELL HAVE SEVEN DEMONS there's no change here what we need my friends is gospel transformation what we need is we need a heart set free we, we need we need to be remade recreated galatians two twenty. i have been crucified with christ it is no longer i who live Christ who lives in me and the life I live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me I am not who I was I'm a new man I can't accomplish that on my own I have to be saved I have to be set free I have to be changed by God it is a supernatural act of God that brings a dead man to life. For me, that happened at age five by His grace. It was like a light switch flipped in my soul. I saw Jesus. I felt the weight of my sin. I repented of my sins. I, I cling to Him as my only hope it just at five years old, friends. That's the glory of the gospel. So simple. And I love it more than ever today. Love him. At five years old, when I trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I was filled with the Holy Spirit. There is no room for demonic possession. When the Spirit takes up residence in the believer, the moment of salvation, you do not fear the indwelling of any demonic activity in your soul, in your life. There's no room left. And you are sealed with the Spirit. It's as if God stamps on your life, this is mine, this is my son, and he will always be my son. And nothing and no one can take him from me. He's mine. My spirit lives here, and he's at work. So at age five, God began to change me, to grow me, to strengthen my resolve, to obey, to love, to serve. I began to see fruit, which was work. Begin to do things I didn't like to do before. Not because I was trying to be saved, but because I was saved. And I loved him. Altogether different. True happiness. The last section here, these verses struck me as just interesting. I, I, I couldn't figure out why this happened at this moment. Let's read this. True, true happiness. Verse 27. As Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. You can just hear this lady from the back, right? She over, overtakes his voice and she speaks this blessing to Jesus. Why? Why would she say this at this point? This this movement is consistent. He's teaching, he's teaching, he's teaching, and then she speaks. I think this is a statement of faith. I think this woman is saying, listen, I know there's some here who are skeptics, and there's some clearly who are hostile, but that's not me. I believe, I believe. And I want to bless the mother that you came from. Now, this is a very Jewish thing to say. To to speak of one's mother is to speak highly of the one, right? So she's she's affirming Jesus. She says, I see you. I love what I see. I bless you, and and, and by blessing your mother, that's what I'm doing here. Hmm. And we just have to pause here and talk a bit about the blessedness of Mary. When she sang her song, she said, From now on, all generations will call me blessed. And that that prophecy is fulfilled, at least in part, right here already. Mary was blessed, but why? You might recall. She found favor in the eyes of God. Greetings favored one. What is favor? What is his favor? It's grace. It's unmerited. Mary was just a poor Jewish girl, maybe 14, 15, 16 years old, and God said, I will bestow a favor upon you by making you the mother of the Messiah. Not because she was sinless or worthy or he saw her and said, wow, Jesus is going to be pretty great if he comes from her. This too, we take huge issue with Roman Catholic teaching. That somehow the righteousness of Christ is derivative from Mary. Not true. Mary was a sinner. That Jesus died to set free as well. So what do we make then of the blessedness of Mary? She was blessed to be chosen by grace as the mother of the Messiah, but more so, I love how Jesus responds. He said, Blessed rather. Now that word there is very unique. It only occurs four times. It's very rare. And and the the sense of this word is that Jesus is not necessarily disagreeing with what she says. He's completing it or fulfilling, building it out. So the, the word rather for us feels like contrast. Well, you say this, but I say this. It's not that. What she said is true, but Jesus wants it to be precise And so he goes on and he says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now think of Mary. Think of the revolutionary revelation that was and her response. Let's do it. Let's go. I am your servant. Huh. Faith, belief, obedience. That's what Jesus is pointing to. Yes, Mary was blessed as the mother of Jesus, but she was far more blessed because of her faith, ultimately in Jesus, I believe. Which means that it's not just those who are tied in a bloodline with Jesus who have the most happiness, but it's those who by faith look to Jesus and are adopted into the family of God. True faith is a faith that obeys. True faith is not just a label. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Well, you know, what does that mean? How does that look in your life? Oh, that's a good question. I don't, I, mean, I don't really do anything different. I just believe. And No, you don't believe. If you don't live it, then you don't believe it. If your knee doesn't bend, then he is not king if you're not repenting of your sins and feeling the weight of your offenses against God, then you don't see and treasure and value the holiness and righteousness of God. we have got to feel this. I fear that there are many people who go to church week after week and wear a label Christian and there is no fire in their heart for love of Christ, no longing to know his word and obey his word, And if that is where you're at today, then be careful and reevaluate the label. Do I really believe that Jesus is my Savior, Lord, and hope alone in this life and the next? True happiness is found in resting in Christ as Lord and in in obeying Him as the master of your life. Some people will think that, that God is out to kind of rain on your parade of fun. This is what Satan wants you to believe. The world knows how to have fun, right? That's where the real fun is. Those church people, man, too bad for them. They have all those rules and laws and things they can't do, restrictions. That's blasphemy. Blasphemy. The happiest, most satisfied life is the life surrendered in total obedience to Christ. You want to live and find joy and satisfaction, then bend your knee to Him. You won't regret it. True happiness is found there. So much in these verses. How do we respond this morning then? And trusting that the Lord and His Spirit even now is, is impressing upon you some of these things that we've covered. Just look at this. The question I began with is to believe or not to believe. It is the question, isn't it? You have to do something with Jesus. You've heard this sermon. What are you going to do? You have to Choose. What is the response of your heart going to be? Will you embrace Him as your Savior, your hope, your joy, your, your, your confidence in this life and the next? Or not? It's my prayer that today every single person in this room or listening would respond in that way by the grace of God. Bend your knee. Don't be the skeptic. You know, the problem is skeptics will often wait just too long. They're just, they're just waiting for something. What is What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? He's holding out life eternal. Don't wait. Embrace him. Maybe you find yourself here and if you're honest, you're, just, you're the antagonist. You find yourself just kind of seething against this Christian message and and you're just hostile online and and, and you you can't stand this, this, this righteousness talk. Salvation stuff. The greatest reality, my friends, is that sometimes God's grace delights to save the antagonist, the strongest antagonist, right? Think of the Apostle Paul and his story, if he were here. He's killing Christians, right? He's imprisoning Christians, beating up Christians. He's trying to stamp out the church. And Jesus comes and says, you're mine. I got you. Now come, watch what I can do. I'm going to make you a church planner. Only God does that. I call you to believe today. Trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Repent of your sins. Stop living for you. Stop living this dead-end life, stumbling around in the dark, imprisoned and lost without hope. Come and embrace Him. Turn to Him. This is the testimony John sums it up. God gave us eternal life. The life, this life, this eternal life is in His Son alone, right? There's no other way to get this life Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There's no neutral ground. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider these realities, we feel the weight of them. We consider the implications of these things. Oh, how easy it is, Lord, to just go through life and try our best to avoid these things, to get busy, To live life, to work hard, have fun, get up, go to bed, enslaved. Father, I thank you for the way that you have worked in this room, in people here that I know how you have awoken them from their sinful slumber, startled them awake to feel the weight of their offenses against you, their sins against you, to to show them the the face of Jesus Christ, their Savior and Lord. We don't deserve this, Lord, but we delight in it. We celebrate your love and your grace to people who are undeserving, sinners like me in this place. We celebrate that you would love us when we were so unlovable, that you would make us your sons and daughters who were your enemies, rebels, haters, We thank you that you are strong enough to save all the way to the uttermost. That when we trust you as Savior and Lord, we dwell secure in you forever, come what may. Lord, thank you that you don't make us work to try to earn or deserve this great salvation. We thank you that Jesus finished the work already. I pray even now, Lord, that there would be many in this place who maybe don't worship you as King and Savior and Lord of their life, that that today would be the day that they move from being the skeptic or the antagonist to being a believer, a follower of you. Accomplish these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.